Well, amen. Good morning. I want to say a particular word of welcome to those of you who are new here this morning, uh, in person or online. My name is Alex, and uh, one of the pastors here at Chatham Community Church. And we're thrilled if you're joining us here for the very first time. Thanks for uh, taking time out on your Sunday morning to be here with us. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. Moms, can we give them a hand? Thank you so much to the moms for all the ways you love and serve uh, kids. It can be a uh, thankless, but hopefully also a joyful job, and hope that you are celebrated in all the appropriate and right ways, or exuberantly celebrated today, those of your moms. And uh, for those of you for whom today's a hard day, uh, maybe you've lost your mom recently, maybe you wanted to be mom and weren't able to be mom, praying for you that you just know the peace of Christ, that you know that you are loved, uh, even in the midst of what can be a hard day for some of us. Uh, this is week three of a series called Won't You Be a Neighbor? Uh, when Jesus was asked, what is the most important command in the whole Bible. He said, well, number one is love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, though, is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what I want to suggest to all of us is it has never been harder in any of our lifetimes to do door number two. Like between COVID and being kind of isolated and separated physically from our neighbors and then the political polarization that just kind of ratchets up and up and up with each new week, there's never been a harder time in any of our lifetimes for us to actually do what Jesus calls us to do. And there's challenges to this all across our nation, all around the world, but here's the deal. The second commandment is still the second commandment. Doesn't matter what happens, doesn't matter where we are, doesn't matter what season or epic or where we live, the command from God is always the same. Love God, love your neighbor, every generation, every challenge, every situation. And in case you haven't noticed, not a whole lot of people are trying to do this right now. Right? This is not high on, on, on the list. And for many of us, it's not very natural, right? The most natural thing, of course, is to push back against the neighbor that we don't like, that annoys us, or that we strongly disagree with. But here's the deal. In every generation, we're called to do the same thing. No matter what goes on in our nation, we know who we are, whose we are, and what our job are. We have our marching orders from Jesus. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbor like ourselves. That's what we do. Doesn't matter what happens all around us. And so this is like we're in the gym in this series. It's trying to work out, kind of get into training. What does it mean for us to actually love our neighbor as ourselves that Jesus calls us to do? And today we're tackling the question, how do we love our neighbor while holding on to what Christians have always said to be true? That what God has done in Jesus is utterly unique, decisive in all of history. In the midst of a sea of all kinds of religions, all kinds of philosophies, what God has done in Jesus is the decisive thing to redeem all of humanity. Now, this is hard for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian or kind of Christian, sort of Christian. Like, all of us have people who disagree with us or have different philosophies, different religions, right? And it's not just people, like, over there, overseas. There's people in our workplaces, in your school, in your neighborhoods that believe very deeply in something that is very different from what Jesus teaches. And many of them are really nice people. In fact, they're nicer than you are. What do you do about that? And they're definitely nicer than church people you know. What do we do about the fact, right, that there's all these different religions, all these different people who worship all these different ways, and yet Christianity throughout history has said this is something that God has done decisively in Jesus. And there's been lots of conflict along religious lines, right, throughout history, friends, family members, and then whole nation states have erupted in wars over different religious beliefs and convictions. And so one answer, of course, the, the current answer, one current answer is tolerance, right? Tolerance. We tolerate each other. And Tolerance isn't a bad thing. As Jesus followers, we can say yes and amen to tolerance. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But in order to support tolerance, there's a whole theological kind of grid, okay? So I'm going to give you a theology of tolerance. And, what, and essentially what this theology is, is whatever works for you, right? This is sort of the religious sort of predisposition of our culture. Whatever works for you. There are four commandments for whatever works for you, okay? It's very simple. Only four commandments. Number one, you need to be happy. This is 
so ingrained in the American psyche as the most important thing, we don't even question it anymore. Are you happy is the number one question in our culture. It's so everywhere, and you can't help but absorb some of this, right? That the question of am I happy, and happiness being the main goal in life is the number one thing. So it's, it's so in the air. It's worth it if you think, one, just this morning, how much have I absorbed? Have I bought that hook, line, and sinker? Or at least have I absorbed some of it? And then question number two, the most important question is, is it true? Is this actually the most important thing? To be happy? Listen, if the goal of all life was to be happy, no mom would exist. How much of your life, how much of your thinking is built around, I need to be happy because this is the number one religion in the United States of America? Presupposition number two. You need to... Be nice, or at least not hurt other people, right? Not be harmful to other people, right? This is, sort of, this is sort of commandment number two. Be nice people, or at least don't hurt anybody, right? Now, in some ways, this resonates with kind of Jesus' command, love your neighbor, right? So we can be on board with that. Don't hurt anybody else. What, you can do kind of whatever you want to be happy as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, right? So that's commandment number two. Commandment number three is this. You don't need God unless you need something or into that sort of thing, right? Here's the deal. If the goal of life is to be happy, you definitely don't need God, because God gets in the way of your happiness all the time. God is actually, turns out, not especially interested in your temporary short-term happiness. He's very interested in your eternal happiness. It's a very different thing. And you can patch together a whole life of temporarily happy things and live a life that in this culture would be the ideal life. I'm happy here, I'm happy here, I'm happy here. I can patch those things together for decades and not need God at all. And so... You don't, so kind of commandment number three is you don't need God unless you need him to be helped, unless you're in trouble, going through a divorce, or you lose someone close to you, then sure, go to God, or unless you're into that sort of a thing, but it's sort of optional. If it works for you, that's great. If not, that's okay too. And then commandment number four, this is the last one, is uh, religious belief is private. If you like the whole God thing, don't tell anybody, please. Don't talk about it. So those are the four commandments. Do you see these things, like, in the culture and around? Like, have you seen these bits and pieces of this sort of floating around, right? Now, the, in, this, in, in this sort of way of thinking, the, a religious practice is basically like a whole rack of clothes. And you pick and choose whatever feels so good to you and looks so good on you, and you can discard the rest and kind of mix and match whatever you want to along the way. But here's my question. Who is at the center of whatever works for you religion? Who's at the center of that? You are. I am. Which I kind of like, Right? I kind of like me being at the center of the universe. Me at the center of it all. Right? I like that idea. Of me being at the center of everything. And, and the whole, listen, the whole culture is telling you that you are at the center of everything. And we like that. But I want to challenge you. You should be very suspicious of anything that makes you the center of the cosmos. You should be very suspicious of anything that says you are the center of the whole world. How everything is organized, including the spiritual world. We tried that with the whole idea that the sun revolves around the earth. It turned out not to be true. The earth wasn't in the center of the cosmos. It didn't make sense to the cosmos. You can't understand the cosmos. If you try to make the earth the center of it, I want to propose to you, you can't make sense of the spiritual world or of the whole, all reality if you try to make you the center of everything. Now, much of this is an attempt, right, to reduce religious conflict by lowering religious truth claims. Nobody really knows anything about God or about humanity or what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to live. Nobody actually knows anything. We're all just making our best guess. So let's all just sort of tone it down. No one, no one actually has the corner on the capital T truth. But the, prof, the problem is whatever works for you religion is there's a whole bunch of truth claims and there's no truth claims. You need to be happy is a truth claim. Is it true? Religion is whatever works for you. Is it true? 
all religious experience is just about you. Is that true? Those are all just truth claims. So they haven't actually eliminated truth claims. They've just added another religion, whatever works for you religion, to the mix. They haven't actually reduced religious tension. They've just added another religion to fight over in the midst of all things. Here's the deal. What I'm supposed to do is this. Everyone makes truth claims. Atheists make truth claims. Apatheists make truth claims. I don't care. Whatever. Do whatever you want to do. It's all the same. Religious people make truth claims. Everyone, everyone, everyone makes truth claims. It's not a question of, are you going to think something's true? It's just a question of what is actually true and how do you actually hold those opinions? How do you actually hold on to what you believe to be true? And is it true? And are you able to be in dialogue and actually love your neighbor as you're doing this? What I want to suggest to you is that the first Christians had the same problem that we have, more so. There was only a few thousand of them. And all around them were people who believed all sorts of things, all kinds of religions, all kinds of philosophies all around them. And what the early Christians believed, they had two convictions. Number one conviction was God had done something utterly unique and distinctive and beautiful in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That there was something completely different, never done before, that, that actually challenged and fulfilled every religion everywhere. They believed that what God had done in Jesus was worth telling everybody about. In fact, they laid down their lives to sort of tell the good news of what God had done in Jesus. That was the first conviction. Conviction number two was that they had to tell about Jesus in the Jesus way in order to love their neighbors. That is, that they could have a truth claim, but the way that they were going to wield that truth claim was in the Jesus way. Humility, love, wisdom, respectfully. That they were going to hold these truth claims as Jesus would hold these truth claims boldly, courageously, and graciously, and in love. My friends, loving our neighbor doesn't mean we just tolerate our neighbor. Tolerance is a lower virtue than love is. Love is a greater virtue than tolerance is. We tolerate in order to serve the larger purpose of love. The way that we love our neighbor, for those of us who are Christ followers, who know the beauty, the grace, the majesty, the glory of what we've just sung all morning long about the grace of God, the love of God. The way that we love our neighbors is by actually telling them the good news of what God has done in Jesus. But the question is, how do we do that? And the way that actually loves our neighbors is not just self-righteous beating people up. It's actually loving. Today we're going to look at one of the most passionate Jesus followers in the New Testament. And we're going to look at how he engages his neighbors with truth in love. And how he does so, he actually loves these people beyond mere tolerance. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Jesus person, not a Christian, and you're kind of sort of a Christian, but this part bugs you about Christianity, the whole like telling people about it, I'm so, so glad you're here. I'm just sitting here to tell you some really good news. Jesus is for you. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And the only way that we actually can love our neighbors is by telling them that. And, 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 the only way we do that, the only way we do that to actually still love our neighbors is not through self-righteousness, not through aggression, not through smugness, but through a, a deep, wise, thoughtful engagement with these neighbors who are all around us. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Uh, if you're brand new to the Bible, in Acts 17 is the story of the early, the early disciples of Jesus who are starting churches after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're picking up several decades after Jesus' resurrection. The apostle Paul is traveling around from town to town. And here's what Paul does. Paul would go some, to a new town. He would start to build a church, tell people about Jesus, and then eventually he would leave when the people wanted to kill him. That was a good sign. Time to leave. 
When people try to stone him around that town, he leaves town. So he's traveling from city to city. So we're picking up in Acts 17. He's just been in this town of Berea. People come and want to kill him in Berea. So he flees. His friends take him to the city of Athens. They go back to Berea to help the church get started, to build a church, get some infrastructure in place. So Paul's in Athens by himself, waiting for his friends to come back and get him so he can continue traveling around. And we get Acts 17, verse 16. We get Paul hanging out in Athens. And here's what happens next. While Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols so blank my wife and i met at unc we got married and we have raised our children to love the proper shade of blue they know the correct shade of blue they've been deeply indoctrinated in the correct shade of blue and one time when my children were very young my wife was meeting some friends at the uh, at the duke gardens and as they pulled onto campus one of my then five six-year-old children said with wide eyes mama is this where the bad people live Yes, it is. Mission accomplished. That's good parenting, in case you're wondering. Paul's in Athens. He's, his eyes are wide. There's idols everywhere, right? He's sort of in this place where, like, oh, my goodness, there's so much wrong with what's around me. And Paul is distressed, maybe in a way where all religious wars begin, all religious conflicts begin. He is, he is upset because he, he sees these people worshiping idols of stone and gold and silver. And he's like, this is wrong. And you know what? We would mostly agree with that, right? Do you have idols of stone, gold, silver in your house that you pray to? So he sees something that he sees is wrong. But here's the problem. This is where all religious conflicts begin. This is where religious wars for centuries have begun. People see someone worshiping something else, and they get upset about it. And so the question is, what's on the other side of that so? What's Paul going to do? He's distressed. He's upset. He's disturbed. What's on the other side of the so, on the other side of his strong reaction to what's happening here in Athens? Because at various points throughout history, what you see on the other side of the so is violence. People get aggressive, get mean, get ugly. They have slaughtered people in the name of right worship rather than love their neighbor. So in order to sort of correct for this, because we don't want this happening, and we got all these people living here in the United States, we've got all these different religions, right? So here's what's happened in the last 50 years, 100 years, to try to correct for all this religious violence. Instead of so violence, you know what we say? So what? Whatever. Doesn't matter. Let them be. Everyone worships their own thing. It's totally fine. Here's the deal. Paul is not going to fall into either one of these camps. He's neither going to fall into religious violence, nor is he going to fall into religious apathy and say, it doesn't matter if these people are worshiping something that's not true, that's wrong, that is actually misguided worship, that's actually misshaping them, misforming them. Paul is not going to sort of be ambivalent about the fact that his Athenian neighbors that he's just meeting are people who are worshiping these gods that aren't gods at all, that are actually like a bunch of like middle school people with deep ego problems. Here's what Paul does on the other side of the cell. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. See, Paul has an urgency, but he doesn't get violent. Paul has an urgency, a holy urgency, but he doesn't get aggressive. But nor does he withdraw and recede and say, whatever, worship however you want to. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. He reasons with them, he engages with them, he goes to the synagogue, goes to the marketplace. Now this is very resonant with the culture of Athens. A a Athens is like a big town full of nerds. 
all they do is philosophers. They sit around and like talk about things and share ideas and debate and spar with one another. So Paul is doing this in a very culturally appropriate way. Here's where I want to start this morning. Loving our neighbor means we care about what they worship and speak into it in culturally appropriate, thoughtful ways. Loving our neighbor means we actually care about what they worship, how they're worshiping. And we express that in ways that are culturally appropriate and thoughtful, wise. Paul starts in the synagogue. That would have been very familiar to Paul. He was a Jew. Synagogues are basically churches popped up for Jews who are no longer in Israel to worship together. They speak the Old Testament. They study the Old Testament. And then he goes to the marketplace, which would have been sort of this free-for-all place where people sparred and discussed all the latest ideas. For those of us today here, you're not going to go to the marketplace to talk about religion. You're not going to go to Food Lion and Lowe's Foods after this and go talk about religion to people there. But you might do it over coffee, over lunch on a work trip, you might do it over an email, email exchange, you might even do that on one of those like forums where people argue about these sort of things, although the returns on that are rather questionable. Paul sees what they're worshiping, he's distressed by it, he doesn't get aggressive and angry about it, he engages thoughtfully about it, he's not going to let these things go either. What I want to propose to you is this, you and I have been so conditioned by our culture to not care about what people worship, we say so what all the time. We've been so conditioned, we've so overcorrected from like all the ways that religion has been used in improper, unholy ways. We say, yes, that's not right. We don't want people slaughtered in the name of Jesus, please. But we've been so conditioned to overcorrect from that, that we have no urgency, zero urgency whatsoever. And so I want to propose to you, those of you who are Jesus followers, you're not actually loving your neighbor if you don't care about what they worship. You're not actually loving your neighbor. If you don't care about what they worship, we are not loving our neighbors. If we do not care about what they're worshiping, if they're, the fact that they're worshiping something that is not God, a no God, a God that misshapes them, misguides them, we are not in tune with who God is and what God has done in Jesus. Here's my question for you this morning. What do you think it would look like for you to have a healthy, holy urgency around wrong worship, motivated by love for God and love for neighbor? What would it look like for you? In your personality, right? Paul's a certain personality. He's a passionate, fiery person. You're not like that, maybe. Uh, but, but what would it look like for you to have a holy, healthy urgency around false worship happening all around us in a way that was rooted and grounded? Love for God. Love for neighbor. If Paul dropped into Chatham County, 2022, he wouldn't see idols of wood and stone, but he would see gods everywhere, Right? individualism, fighting for applause and approval, bigger platform, bigger crowd, bigger, bigger crowds, bigger megaphones. As our nation gets less and less religious, we get more and more political instead of religious. Politics replaces religion. Political platforms are your theology. Your gods are your candidates, and we are willing to go to battle, go to war. We're willing to vilify anybody that disagrees with us politically in the name of what we think to be true or right. Those are our false gods. Those gods tear us apart. They, will, they might someday destroy the United States of America because they have no grace to give to anyone. Consumerism, independence, how much posting about our trips and travel and excursions, vacations. We have all these gods, right? All these gods that shape us. They're gods pulling at us. And we are invited to share in Paul's holy discontent with false worship happening all around us. What do you think it would look like for you? In your places, in your spaces, those of us who are Jesus followers, not all of you are, but those of us who are, what does it look like for you to have a healthy, holy urgency, discontent around false worship around us? And what does it mean to engage that in culturally appropriate ways, love for God, love for our neighbors. Now, this, the way that Paul's been doing it gets him a hearing. 
People are intrigued by what he's saying. And it gets him a hearing. And one of the biggest places, one of the biggest stages he could possibly get, the Areopagus. Here's how that unfolds. Verse 8. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, well, what is this babbler trying to say? Much love to Paul. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they brought him and took him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. And one of the greatest lines in the whole Bible, the author Luke says this, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, about 10 years ago, I had my candidating weekend here at Chatham Community Church. If you're not familiar with what a candidating weekend is, you go and meet and greet people on a Saturday, then Sunday morning is like a beauty pageant, which I never win those. You bring your best sermon and you try to convince people that you're worth hiring, basically, right? It's what you do. And so it was a very big moment, so I did two really important things. One, I talked very slowly because people were very concerned about this, which I understand. The second thing I did was I, I want to talk about what I thought meant the most, what was very important in Christian community. I talked about the power of forgiveness, how important forgiveness was from Jesus to us, how important it was for us to extend forgiveness to one another. The only way a community holds together is if we're empowered to forgive. It was a big moment. I wanted to bring something I thought was crucial, mission critical. Paul here has a big moment in front of the Areopagus, the movers and shakers shaping the culture all around him throughout the Roman Empire. It's a big moment. How he chooses to gauge, engage in this moment tells us a lot about what it means to love our neighbors the way that Paul loved his neighbors. So here's how he loves his neighbors. Verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. What Paul, how Paul starts, he stands up and he says, what can I affirm? Application number one, you know where Christians start? We're talking about people that don't agree with us. We start with yes. Yes. I see it every way. You're very religious. Yes. That's good. I see that you're eager to connect with God, eager for spiritual experience. Yes. Anything that Christians can say and see around us. Paul is soaked in this culture all around him. He's looking for things. What can I say yes to? What can I affirm? What can I celebrate? I see that you are very religious. Yes to hunger for purpose. Yes to hunger for identity. Yes to hunger for love. Yes to hunger for uh, a sense of community, uh, religiously, spiritually. Yes to pleasure even. Yes to all these things. These are God-given things yes 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 and then paul's gonna say yes and there's something else yes and there's something that god has done in jesus to both correct and fulfill these things so throughout this address what we're gonna watch for we're gonna look for there's two things we want to look for we're gonna look for one resonance and bridges paul is gonna look all around him throughout the culture for resonance with the gospel of Jesus and ways to build bridges to the gospel of Jesus that connect with his audience that are right there. He's looking for resonance and bridges, right? What can he say yes to? What can he celebrate? What can he kind of agree with? And he's going to have dissonance and challenges. He's going to name dissonance and challenges about the worship going around him. He's not going to be afraid to challenge the people around him and articulate how does the Jesus way, the Jesus work, the Jesus message, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus both affirm some things in here and also introduce challenge to the worship happening around him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to color code it as we go through to help us to see this, okay? 
So resonance and, cha- resonance and, uh, and bridges is going to be in green. And then dissonance and challenges are going to be in orange, okay? So resonance is going to be in green. Dissonance and challenge is going to be in orange. So let's go back to his opener right here, right? Here's his opener. It's all green. I see that in every way you are so very religious. Yes, I affirm that hunger for religion. I affirm you're looking for something spiritual. Look, there's even an altar to the unknown gods. You're covering all your bases. Very thorough of you, Athenians. Very thorough. And now, and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to fulfill and fill out your religious framework. I'm going to proclaim to you who this God is. So here's how Paul is going to launch into his whole thing. He's going to actually launch with some dissonance and some challenge now that he's sort of built a bridge with the people. Here's what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything any of y'all remember ancient greek mythology from like middle school remember that the ancient greek gods were like an episode of dance moms meets the bachelor drama 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 right and many of those ancient myths and ancient gods they're like they're like in one location they're like in the seas or the mountains or on the valley or the plain like these gods are very localized and they need humans to kind of do their biddings humans are kind of their playthings, right and they poke at them and they fall in love with them and then they kind of get, get get angry with them right so it's like this recreational kind of thing right paul here declares with dissonance and challenge god the real god's not like that he's lord over all of it he made earth and sky and sea he's not like a localized small god and he relates to people, relates to human beings very differently than Dance Moms meets The Bachelor, drama, drama, drama. How about character? How about integrity? How about hope? How about love? How about wisdom? How about beauty? How about grace? Paul continues. Rather, this God, the Lord God himself, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. There's more dissonance. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. My friends, you are not neighbored to the people you're currently neighbored to on accident. God's given it to you, appointed you to be in that place, to be a neighbor in that location, in that workplace. God has set you here, appointed your times, your locations to be a neighbor, to learn to be a neighbor with the annoying people all around you in your workplace, at your school, in the location where God set you. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Here in the green, Paul's quoting two different philosophers that, are, that were known to those people, right? And so as he does this, he's found points of resonance. He's found the yes, 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 yes to that. In this situation, he quotes their, their pagan poets and philosophers. Other situation, he quotes the Old Testament. Why does he do this? Is he being duplicitous or hypocritical? No, here's what Paul's doing. Paul's quoting the authorities that people there already trust, not importing a foreign authority they had no reason to trust. Here's what, Christians make this mistake all the time. Sometimes I see Christians quote the Bible to people who don't like the Bible. Don't trust the Bible. Don't believe the Bible. Why would they listen to a command from the Bible? They don't trust the Bible. They don't know the Bible. Paul starts with the cultural authorities because there's a yes there. There's something he can anchor it in. And then he pivots to call them into a deeper walk with the true God. My friends, here's the good news. Whether you're into country music or Taylor Swift, whether you're into dance moms or into Marvel Avengers, whether you're into Amish romance novels, whatever, or or you like the drama on the Chatham chat list or next door, no matter what you're into, there are places of resonance where the true God comes to meet us. 
There are places where we can say yes and. There's places where God can say, I can meet you in the midst of that. I see your longings for connection, for community, for love. I see your longings for justice, for righteousness. I see your longings to serve, to make a difference. We can say yes, yes, yes to all these things. And we can quote cultural kind of values, cultural uh, words and speakers, cultural songs and poets and say, we might not agree with everything, but look here. Here's a picture, a small slice of God's kingdom that wants to come be expressed in you. Listen. Every cultural expression all around us has been expressed by someone made in God's image. So there's something of God mixed in it, no matter how distorted it might be. There's something in there we can say, yes, there's resonance and bridges to Jesus. So Paul knows this, and he quotes the authorities they already have rather than importing the scriptures, which they don't know anything about. And he continues to build a case in the hopes that they might then move to trusting in the God who is Lord over the scriptures. He says this, therefore, since we are God's offspring, yes, exactly like your pagan poet said, there's some, there's some resonance there. We should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Dissonance, dissonance, dissonance. That's not the real God. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people to repent. For he said a day, when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, there's two major philosophical camps, political camps, right? The Stoics and Epicureans. And they're like Democrats and Republicans. They don't agree about much. But here's what they do agree on. People don't raise from the dead. People aren't raised from the dead. This is not a thing. And so here, Paul gets some pushback, right? Verse 22. 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. My friends, what does the scripture teach us about loving our neighbor, people who believe differently or don't believe anything at all? First off, we're called to love our neighbor. Doesn't matter what their religion is or no religion is. Doesn't matter what they think about Jesus or Christians. We are called to love our neighbor. No exceptions. There's not like a caveat. There's not like, a, not like a footnote in the scriptures. Here, here you don't, here's who you don't have to love. We are called to love our neighbors. And at the same time, part of loving them means we tell them as graciously, winsomely, and wisely as possible about the good news about what God has done in Jesus Christ to change everything. Every early Christian had to do this. Right, Paul, the person who's making this, uh, this, who's making this address, he was a good, faithful Jew. He meets Jesus. You know what he does? He meets Jesus dramatically. He spends three years in the desert rethinking his whole outlook on life, his whole religious sort of system around Jesus. Because here's the deal. Jesus is not going to be an add-on to anyone else's system. You can't just tag on Jesus for something else you're doing. You can't have the American dream with a little Jesus on the side. It won't work. You can't have a little bit of like this, a little bit of that, and a little Jesus mixed in. It won't work. Jesus is the system. Jesus is the whole thing. This is a house. You're not putting Jesus on the back like a porch. Jesus is going to rewire the whole house. That's what he wants to do. He has come to rewire the whole house. That's exactly what he's come to do. You can't have a little bit of Jesus on the side. Jesus, the center of it all. I want you to step inside the Jesus framework, the story, and, and, and see it from inside the story. 2,000 years ago. To a good, faithful Jewish couple, God puts on flesh, is born a son. His name is Jesus. He's born into a, a, a Jewish people that are a little bit crisis. They're conquered by the Roman people, but otherwise there's lots of faithful people around doing all, worshiping God very faithfully as best they know how. And this boy grows up, and he teaches like no one else, and he heals like no one else did, does miracles like no one else did. 
And his path leads to one of the worst executions possible. He's supposed to give himself over to one of the most painful forms of execution possible. And on the night when it's all going down, he goes and prays to God his Father. You know what he prays. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? And you know what he hears back from the Father? No. There is no other way. There is no other way for people to be forgiven of their sin. There is no other way for people to be reconciled to God and to each other. If there was another way, Jesus is off the hook there in the garden. If there was another way, he doesn't send his son to die on the cross. If there was another way, it would have been fine for Jesus to cut and run, but there was no other way. If Judaism would have worked, no need for the cross. If paganism would have worked, no need for missionary work. No need to travel around, talk to the Athenians. If anything goes, it all roads lead to God. There's no need for a cross and resurrection. So he goes to the cross and he gets resurrected. This is going to be the way that all the longings for every religion are both corrected and fulfilled. This is the correction and the fulfillment to Judaism. This is the correction and the fulfillment to Islam. This is the correction and the fulfillment to Hinduism and Buddhism and atheism and humanism and secularism. This is the correction and the fulfillment of all human longings for all time. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus is the thing that God has done in history to correct, redeem, and fulfill every other philosophy, every other religion for all time. And so there was no other way. Jesus had to be crucified to deal with the problem, solve the problem that was separating us from God. He had to be raised from the dead. And so here's what happens. Paul is so convinced of this, and he so loves his neighbor that he spends his entire adult life, the rest of his life, telling his neighbors about Jesus. And they love their neighbors enough to tell their neighbors about it. And they love their neighbors enough to tell their neighbors about it. And they love their neighbors about it and their kids enough about it. They tell everyone about it. They tell and tell and tell. The only reason why you and I are here 2,000 years later, basking in grace, celebrating mercy, filled with the Holy Spirit, is because someone loved their neighbor enough to tell them about Jesus for 2,000 years. Otherwise, you and I are lost and dead. And we don't hear this news. 2,000 years later other side of the world, the only reason why we know about this is because people love their neighbors enough to tell them the good news of what God has done in Jesus. And so we, with great respect and love for our neighbors, learn what matters to them, what's important to them, where are the places where there's resonance with this good news of Jesus. And we look for opportunities to say yes, and here's how the good news of Jesus fulfills, completes, and even challenges and corrects things that might be broken in that system, no matter what that system is, apart from Christ. And so, my friends, we love our neighbors by telling them good news of what God has done in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. That's what it means for us to be a neighbor. Today's wildly important take on question number one is this. What do you think it would look like for you to have a healthy, holy urgency response to wrong worship, motivated by love for God and for neighbor? For those of us who are Jesus people, what do you think it would look like for you to look around, see false worship around you, because it's happening it's every generation, all over the world, this has always been true. What does it look like for you to have a healthy, holy urgency around the fact that people are worshiping things that are not gods, that are misshaping them, that are misguiding them and misdirecting them? What does it mean to do that work in your heart so that you're positioned out of love for God and neighbor to then serve them? Question number two, I wanna invite you to listen for residents and look for bridges 
as you relate to your neighbors, coworkers, family members, as you watch things on TV, watch movies, what can you say yes to? Where are there opportunities for bridges to, to people looking for love, community, acceptance, purpose, again, justice, these things that are so a part of our culture. Where can you say, yeah, Jesus says 100% yes to that, even if you go a funky direction with it, or even if it gets expressed in ways that I think aren't faithful, aren't healthy, aren't holy. I could say yes to some things here in our culture and then can you name the dissonance and articulate the challenge of, uh, of what the Jesus way does to worship around us? Can you boldly, graciously, gently start to name the dissonance, right? Some of us are more inclined toward like, yay, everybody's great, and we can like name the resonance. And some of us are more inclined to like, I like a good fight, and I don't mind sort of naming the dissonance. We need to be able to do both. Name the resonance, where's the yes, and then also be willing and able to name the difference and say, here's how Jesus both fulfills and corrects the ways around us. And then finally, here's the last thing, and I want this to be really concrete and specific. I want you to list three neighbors. By neighbors, I mean loosely. Someone you work with, someone literally in your neighborhood, someone that uh, in your school, a classmate, a roommate. I want you to think of three neighbors and start praying for them this week. Start praying. That God would open a door for you to be able to say yes and to them. God would open a door for you to be able to name, hey, I see kind of what God's up to. I see the places where you're struggling. I see the challenges. I, I, I want to come alongside you. I want to serve you. I want to love you. And part of that means maybe it's making a meal. Maybe it's mowing the lawn. But maybe it's also sort of saying, here's the good news of what God has done in Jesus to redeem all things, make all things new. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, not a Jesus person, like this whole thing drives you crazy. So, so glad that you are here. Thank you for being here. Here's the good news. God so loved you, put on flesh, lay down his life to redeem and restore and renew you. And one day, God will step into this messy, broken world. It's beautiful but broken. And he will sing a new song over it. Behold, I'm making all things new. Behold, I'm making all things new. One day, Jesus Christ will come and make all things new. You too. And the invitation is to be a part of that great story of what God is doing in Jesus to renew and redeem and restore all things. That's the invitation that we extend to all our neighbors as we learn what it means to be a neighbor that loves like Jesus loves. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for inviting us into your great story. Thanks for your magnificent work of redemption, magnificent work of renewal. Thank you for your laying down of your life. Thank you for being willing to serve us. And so, Lord Jesus, first off, I want to pray for my friends who are here who aren't sure they believe any of this. With the good news of a resurrected king who's come to resurrect us, would that resonate? Would that awaken something in us? Uh, uh, someone who has come to redeem all things, renew all things, restore all things. Lord Jesus, would that, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on my friends here who aren't sure where they are spiritually or aren't really kind of on board? Would, would you awaken something in them that, is, that just resonates with this truth? And then for the rest of us, would you teach us to love our neighbors like Paul did, to have a holy, healthy urgency around what they worship, to find ways that we can build bridges and, and speak words of resonance, and then be bold and humble but gracious and truth-telling and inviting people into a different way, the Jesus way that is different from everything else but invites all of us into your great story, centuries long, of writing a redemptive, renewing story. Would we be a part of that work by loving our neighbors this week? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.